Now, the reason um, that this streaming series, if you're thinking about, wait a minute, I don't know, I didn't see where this kind of fit. Well, this is the prequel, right? So this is, this is pre-Bilbo Baggins, pre-Frodo Baggins, and Gandalf, and Samwise, and, and all of that. This kind of tells the story before uh, the story. And if you're wondering, man, well, I, didn't, I just didn't see, I didn't see much about it. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the prequel, this streaming series, um, you know, when we come up to this series every year, you know, six months ago or whatever, our teaching pastors are kind of thinking about it, praying about it, and each of the teaching pastors kind of says, well, you know, I think we, this one or that one, and we kind of give everybody a little room to choose. So the reason that we're doing um, the Rings of Power series is because of Pastor Kale at our Delaware campus. He is the only reason that we are doing. <laughs> Kale owns a real hobbit sword, like a legitimate um, hobbit sword. And so even though the reviews for the series uh, weren't great, um, Kale wanted to do the series, so we're like, okay, Kale, we'll, um, we'll, we'll do that. And I'm going to quote him. He says that this series, and I quote, is for the nerdiest of the nerdy Lord of the Rings fans. So for all three of you here this morning, this is for you. <laughs> Now, the, the, the series is actually not as bad maybe as some of the reviews that came out about it. Once you saw in the trailer really is the main theme of the series. It's, it's mainly centered around Galadriel, and um, she is trying to mobilize all of the good in Middle-earth to fight a young Sauron as he's trying to, to take over, and Sauron has murdered her brother. And so what you see in and around the series, I think one of the major themes, if not the major theme, is that Galadriel learns that while she's trying to do good, um, and fight against evil, she learns that it's not just that there's evil around her, but she's also fighting against the evil that is inside her. And so the reality is that the big theme, I guess, that we would look at this morning and we're going to look at in Vesco is it lines right up with the life of John the Baptist, is that you see John the Baptist is one of these guys that learns to fight both the humanity that is in us and the humanity that is around us. John the Baptist was the first cousin uh, of Jesus. And so kind of, if I could say it to you this way, John the Baptist is the prequel to Jesus. He's the one who shows up first on the scene and introduces the idea that the Messiah is not coming years and years into the future, but the Messiah is here. The gospel writer, John, different from John the Baptist, he introduces us to him in chapter 1 and verse 23 because people come to John the Baptist, this um, thousands and thousands of people are coming to him, right, to be baptized at the River Jordan. People think John the Baptist is the Messiah, and they want to push him in that direction. Here's John the Baptist's response in verse 23 of chapter 1. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make the way straight uh, for the Lord. To me, the characteristic that sets John the Baptist apart from so many others um, in Scripture, so many others in our word is a single word, one word, just humility. Unbelievable humility. People, thousands of people were coming to him. It would have been very easy for John the Baptist to have looked at that, seen that, and set up a TV ministry, right? Uh, create a blog to go with it, set up Twitch, Twitter, you know, get a per-click ratio basis going on to make some, some extra income and to make all that work for himself. But instead of doing that and saying, yeah, come to me, I'm the one. He says, no, I'm not the one. But the one is coming. I know the one. My job, I'm not the king, but I have a role in the kingdom, and that's to point you to the king. It's humility. It's unbelievable humility. When you think about it in the context of what goes on a lot in our world, 
Andrew Murray's definition of humility is the one that we're going to roll with this morning because I think it's the best one. Humility simply is this, saying to God, three little words, I need you. That's what humility is. So say those three words together. together. Ready? One, two, three. I need you. One more time. Ready? I need you. The theme of John the Baptist's life is that I am not the one, but I know the one, and my life is geared towards pointing everything and everyone I know towards the one. If he's first, what? I'm second. John said it over and over and over again. He must increase. It's so beautiful. And for him to increase, he must increase what I must decrease. He must take front and center, which means I must take a step back because what I want people to see is not me. What I want people to see is him. He must increase. I must decrease. Even Jesus, his first cousin, when speaking about John the Baptist, Jesus has glowing things to say at this Um, I'm sure unbelievable level of respect, not just because we're family, because we love each other, because the two of them being first cousins, but because of what he saw in John the Baptist's life that was just, quite frankly, it's just unique. Um, Over in um, Matthew chapter um, 11, Jesus uses this unique metaphor to describe John. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see? Or what you got in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, right? <clears throat> now, the, the idea is, if you know anything about John the Baptist, you remember they kind of lived out in the wild. He kind of ate out in the wild. He wore camel's hair, very rough, right? He would have, actually, he would have fit in great in Middle Earth, right? When you see the costumes, like, he would have been fantastic. Like, that would have been a great world for him. And John's like, what did you, what did you go out to see? What were you expecting? Something that was just falling into alignment, With everything else that you see, here's what he says. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see a prophet? He says, yes, I tell you even more, um, even more than a prophet. Jesus uses not just a metaphor, but an anti-metaphor for John. He says, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now the inferred answer there is what? No, not. John the Baptist was anything but a reed shaken by the wind, right? His life was guided by truth. As a matter of fact, truth, that's going to get him in trouble. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But he was not a reed. I was just driving this morning, right? It's that time of year. Everything's kind of dried up. I was, why would Jesus choose this metaphor? Wind blows this way. Reed blows this way. Wind changes direction. What happens? Reed blows What's Jesus' point? Don't be a reed. Be guided by truth. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you, what's going to well up, and you're going to be like, oh, yeah, don't be a reed. That means you've got to be tough and mean. That means you've got to be a jerk. That means you've got to be, not at all. Do not buy into the false narrative that you are either a Christian or you're compassionate. It's not an either or. As Christians, we should be more compassionate because we do know the one, because we do say he's first, we are second. It ought to make sense to us, right? Absolutely. Why would you be a jerk about anything? We have truth. And so what we have to do as believers, and it's not always, it's not always simple, but we hold those things together in tension. We hold truth and compassion together. And John the Baptist, is an, he's an incredible example um, 
of this. Guided by truth. In, um, in Israel, where they were, um, John has this conflict with Herod Antipas, one of the rulers, one of the Roman kings in Palestine. To the degree that Herod puts out a warrant for John the Baptist's arrest. He's like, well, why? Herod, is, um, he's married uh, in a strategic alliance. It's just, that's all it is. It's political diplomacy. What would, uh, kings would do in their world, right? You have two countries that butt up against each other. Neither one of them wants to attack and kill and, you know, all of that. So what they would do is they would create political alliances through marriage. It was called royal intermarriage. So this king marries this king's daughters. This king marries this king's daughters. And the idea is that if your daughters and your grandchildren are on the other side of the border, right, you're not going to attack, you're not going to rape, pillage, kill, you're not going to do those things. That's all it was. These, these marriages were a peace treaty. And Herod Antipas married the king of Nabataea's daughter. Didn't love her, but good for diplomacy. Problem. Later on, a few years later, Herod Antipas falls in love with a different woman. Her name's Herodias. She happens to be his uh, sister-in-law, which is a completely different sermon. Uh, but he decides he wants to marry Herodias. So he asks Herodias to marry him. Herodias says, you know what? I'll marry you. I'll leave my kingly husband from another area. I'll come. I'll marry you on one condition. You've got to divorce your first wife. So Herod blinded by love, not in a Phi Beta Kappa mood, move, he decides he's going to marry Herodias. But to do that, he divorces the king of Nabatea's daughter, sends her packing home. So here you've got the king of Nabatea over here, his little princess daughter's coming home, publicly humiliated, destroying a political alliance. So you know what the king of Nabatea does? He declares war on Herod. Herod finds out about it. He realizes they're coming. He rallies his army. Herod's got 10,000 soldiers. The king of Nabatea has got 20,000 soldiers. And the king of Nabatea, he just smokes Herod and Herod's army. It is public humiliation for Herod. Now, John the Baptist has been there, and he's been speaking out against it because Herod is destroying a family, right? He's destroying all this solely for his own gain, doesn't care about his people, doesn't care about his soldiers. And he... So what does Herod do? Herod puts John the Baptist in prison because I've lost over here, so I have to have some show of, of strength. So what he does is he finds John the Baptist and, and he puts John the Baptist in, in prison. Now here's how strong, here's how brave team Jesus, John the Baptist are. Jesus goes to Galilee, not away from Galilee, where you would think he would go. Jesus goes to Galilee and he publicly teaches. And when he's publicly teaching, um, in uh, Luke chapter 14, Jesus is teaching uh, there, and he says this. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down first to count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he is not able to finish, and all who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build, was not able to finish. Jesus says, listen, what kind of, what kind of dim bulb leader would go out and start a building when he didn't have the resources to finish a building, Right? Because if he does that, everybody's going to mock him. And I'm sure everybody in the crowd was like, yeah, Jesus, that's exactly what they would do. They would mock. He, Jesus is using sarcasm here as a means of, of, of a literary kind of teaching agent. Jesus says, and then let me tell you another one. Down in verse 31, next verse. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him 
with 20,000. And I'm sure everybody's like, ha-ha. I think the young people would say, savage, right? And Jesus publicly takes Herod to task, who's just put his brother-in-law, right? Who's just put his brother-in-law in, not a reed, right? And team Jesus, John the Baptist, they, they are saying, listen, truth matters. And at the same time, compassion matters. Listen, what I think you see in the life of John the Baptist that becomes true is that the gospel, it makes us fierce and humble all at the same time. Every now and then, somebody will say to me, um, you know, Christianity, I mean, it's okay, but, you know, it kind of seems boring. I would say there's a good chance you're doing it wrong, right? Christianity is a joyful war for eternal things that matter most. I'm going to say that to you again. Christianity is a joyful war for eternal things that matter the most. It's a war. It's a battle. It's a fight. And there's joy in it because he's first. He's first, and we're second. And in the process of doing it, you don't have it all worked out. You don't, you don't always have everything figured out. But what you see in the life of John the Baptist is there's this incredible, he must increase, I must decrease humility about the way that he lived. But even in that, you see the humanity and the weakness and the frailty that is part of all of our lives. John the Baptist is sitting there in prison. Jesus is out teaching publicly. I'm sure John the Baptist is praying to not be in prison. Nothing's happening, nothing's changing. And so John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus from prison. And he tells them, go ask Jesus a question for me. It's in Luke uh, chapter 7 verse, uh, and verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things uh, to him. And John, calling two of his disciples uh, to him, sent them to, to the Lord, to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? John the Baptist, the one that Jesus said the greatest who's ever been born among women. It's pretty lofty territory. John the Baptist says, listen, I need you to go to Jesus and I need you to ask him a question. Is he really the one? Or should we look for somebody else? Why is he asking? This is John the Baptist and he's doubting. Why is he? Because he's sitting in prison and he's seen Jesus do miracles. And he's praying for a miracle, and the miracle's not happening. And all of a sudden, there's this humanity, there's this weakness, there's this frailty, and there's this doubt that creeps up in the greatest of the greatest. And Jesus says to John's emissaries, and he answered them, verse 22, and he answered them, go tell John what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive their sight, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news, preach to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, we read through the Gospels, and we read through that like Jesus just gave a response. It was a response, but not only a response. What Jesus does is he recounts and expands on his, on his personal mission statement. 
This is a quotation that comes from Isaiah chapter 61. All of the early Hebrew readers in early centuries, they would have known it, they would have recognized it, because when Jesus launched his public ministry in Luke chapter 4, this is the passage that he quotes. He stands up in the synagogue, he reads uh, from Isaiah in the scroll in the Old Testament, and he says, this is me, this is the Messiah, it's me. And just to remind you what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4 when he launched his public ministry, here's what he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery uh, of sight to the blind. So Jesus basically recounts this to John's leaders. And John, he, Jesus said, go tell him everything you've seen. Tell him you've seen the blind receive their sight. You've seen, uh, you've seen uh, the poor receive food. You know, see, tell, tell him what you The lame are walking. Tell John what you've, what you've seen. But he left one thing out. Did you notice it? There's one thing that Jesus says in Luke chapter 4 when he announces his public ministry that whenever he gives the answer to John's emissaries, he leaves one thing out. We don't, we, would, we don't really notice it when we read it, but the early listeners would have read it, and certainly John would have read it, because you know what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say to John, he doesn't say, go tell John. There's going to be liberty to the captives, why not? Because John's not going to get out of prison. John will be beheaded for the cause of the gospel, the cause of the... It's amazing when you think about it, isn't it? John the Baptist and Jesus, two men, two cousins, born six months apart, dying within a year of each other, both living and dying for the same cause, the influence of the kingdom of God in you and me. The reason that I think the characters of J.R.R. Tolkien endure over time is that he writes to us, um, he writes into his heroes incredible belief and doubt. Not belief or doubt. That's what you and I want. That's what we, we want to say. Well, you're either a Christian and you've got all the answers and you've got everything figured out, right, and you've got it all together, or you doubt. Tolkien does a masterful job of creating characters who come together who do both. We don't like that. We like the symmetry. So just like Christians hold together, right, we hold the tension we said of truth and compassion, we also hold the tension in our lives of faith and doubt. We see it over and over again in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, there's one of the, you know, capital D disciples and when we, we bring up his name, we, we named him, right? Doubt. Poor guy, right? One time, he has one weak moment, right? And for thousands of years, we know him by the name Doubting. It's like, Doubting Tom, whenever you say his name, it's like, he's like the Debbie Downer of the New Testament. Wah, wah. Whenever, whenever you say his name, right? And yet, at the end of Jesus' life, coming up against the last week, Jesus says he had set his face like a flint that he was going to Jerusalem. And Jesus says to his disciples, we are going. And the disciples knew what that meant. They knew that not only would he probably die, could he get crucified, that, that they would probably die, that there's a chance that they could get crucified. And they're looking at each other like, Who's going to tell him this is a bad idea? 
Who's going to tell him that we really don't want to go? It was Thomas who spoke up. John chapter 11, verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, if you know the story around the passion, you know that Thomas doesn't die whenever they head to Jerusalem, but eventually Thomas does die, taking the gospel to the east. He dies in India. He's martyred um, for his faith years later. And we call this guy Doubting Thomas. When the reality is that you know it and I know it, right, that belief and doubt work together in all of our lives. And there are moments in all of our lives, I don't, I don't feel like I'm a Christian who's got it all together, who's got all the answers. I mean, maybe you feel that way. I don't feel that way. I feel more like that dad in Mark chapter 9, right, who comes to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, could you, could you heal my son? Jesus, my son is sick. Could you, could you heal my son? And Jesus said, well, everything's possible to him, to him who believes. And the father in Mark chapter 9, he comes right back at Jesus. And he's like, listen, Jesus, Lord, I believe, but what? Help my unbelief. Jesus, I'm here because I believe, but I got to tell you, Jesus, that I'm struggling with the parts that I don't understand, that I don't believe. Lord, I believe, but Jesus, I don't understand this diagnosis that I just got back from my doctor. I don't understand this treatment plan because it doesn't seem to have a good end to it. Lord, I believe, right, but I'm struggling right now, so could you, could you help my unbelief? Lord, I believe, I, I believe, and at the same time, Lord, I've got to go sit down and I've got to talk to, I've got to, talk to children this morning and I've got to give them the bad news that no, ch no child should ever hear this experience, maybe that no child should ever, Lord, I believe, but I'm struggling. Could you help my unbelief? Lord, I'm here. I'm with you. Lord, I'm all in. Let us go that we may die with him. And Lord, there are moments in my life where I say alongside of the psalmist in the Old Testament, why is it that, that the unrighteous prosper while I see the righteous suffer. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief in the incredible lesson that I think that we learn from the life of John the Baptist is that a little bit of doubt about what you don't understand does not ultimately derail your faith about all of the truth that you do understand. A little bit of doubt about the things that you don't understand does not derail your faith. And the thing that you see in Tolkien's characters, the thing that you see in the life of John the Baptist, and dare I say, even in the life of our Savior, who in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I know these are deep theological waters to unpack, but I think you can at least with certainty say, that when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he looks up to his father and he says, Father, let this cup pass from me, it was some sort of expression of his humanity, that he was fully human, just like you and me. And he says, Father, let this cup pass from me as an expression of his humanity, knowing what was out in front of him in the cross, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. Father, let this cup pass from me, but then there's this incredible grit, this, in, this security of deity, because he follows that up with what? Nevertheless, not my will, 
Not my will, but your will be done. What an incredible Savior that we have. And he is acquainted, the scriptures say that he is acquainted with our grief. He understands our suffering because he became one of us, but he became one of us so that he could save us, so that he could rescue us. And so as our representative, he goes to the cross, dies, pays for your sins and my sins to give us a path of relationship back to God. So what? So you and I can have different kinds of lives, transformed, kind of not perfect lives, not lives where we've got it all figured out. But what we do have is hope. That first Thessalonians kind of hope that we talked about early in the year where we can look backwards at the activity of Christ and because of that we can understand that in our present God is with us and he is moving us towards a future. Because the first time Jesus came, he came as our Savior. But the next time that he comes, he will come back revealed as our King. And he will fulfill the prophecy given to Eve all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when the Lord said, and your seed, the one who comes from you, will crush the head of that serpent. And he will set everything how it is supposed to be. So, so what? Dean, that seems like a great, that seems like a great moment out in the future. Great, so what? So that means for you and I today, you and I lock arms. And we encourage one another even so much more as we see the day uh, approaching, as, the see, as we see the day coming into what? Into a he must increase, I must decrease kind of life. We jump in together into this joyful war for eternal things that matter the most. Those are going to be the things that are going to mark our lives. We're not going to be a reed shaken by the wind, flipping back and forth all the time, right? Well, yeah, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. The thing that's going to guide our lives is that we are not the one, but we know the one, that he is first, that we are second. We're going to live life in the reality. We're going to hold truth and compassion. We're going to hold those things in tension. Faith and doubt, we're going to hold those things in tension. And in the darkest moments, when we don't know where to, we're going to move forward anyway because of the things we do believe, not be sidled by the things that we that we don't believe. But that's what marks us. And along the way, we have moments, like this morning, moments of celebration. This morning in our two services, um, we're gonna see nine people go public with their faith through baptism. And the unique thing to me this morning is the breadth of the way that God brings people to himself. We've got people who are coming this morning um, for baptism um, who came to know Christ in parachurch ministries like uh, the Navigators and Young Life, people who are coming to root themselves into um, a local church. We have people who are coming this morning that came to know Christ through family discipleship. We have people who came to know Christ a couple of months ago through studying um, apologetics uh, and figuring out, hey, what are the answers that I need that are critical about the personhood of Christ? We're gonna have people who are gonna be baptized this morning who came to know Christ uh, two weeks ago, people who came to know, uh, young people who came to know Christ in Life Point kids. And this morning, we get to see the breadth of the ways that God brings people to himself. But all of them come at a moment because they understand. They understand that we are broken, flawed, sinful people who cannot save ourselves. And so we come to God and we say, what? I need 
That the, the liturgy of the morning, the refrain of the morning has been what? Because God is, God is great, he is capable, he is able, he is sufficient, and we are not. And because we are not, that gives us this, this position that we say we come to him. So what we're going to do after I pray is that we're going to experience and we're going to celebrate baptisms and we're going to see humility in other people. And at the same time we see humility, what we're going to do is we're going to sing humility. We're going to sing a song called, Lord, I need you. And so you can see it this morning and you can sing it this morning. But the real question is, is it true for you? You can see it and you can, you can sing it, but does it really sink in to your soul that you need him? That you need to be a palms up kind of person, receiving from God what he has brought to us, the sufficiency of the person of Christ that should melt our hearts to the degree that we are transformed and changed. Only he can bring that. So I hope that you experience it as we sing it and as we see it. Let's pray together. Lord, we sing this morning that we humbly confess that God, uh, oftentimes our attitudes are wrong, our actions are wrong, and so God, this is just nothing more than a display of repentance this morning, a display of us turning our hearts your direction, asking for you to do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. And this is a moment this morning of celebration of what you're doing in the lives of other people, and God, we want it to be a celebration of the breadth of what you're doing in all of our lives, in the midst of belief and doubt in the midst of truth and compassion God help us not to be not to be reeds but rather God to be firmly entrenched in the truth that you are the one and our lives are given to you to follow you to love you to trust you even when we don't understand you are great and sufficient and capable and able and it's in your name we pray. Amen.